Whether concepts such as the golden ratio or more subjective standards of aesthetic judgments, beauty has been the subject of debate for every era of philosophical history. In the ancient world, it was the Greeks that formed much of what the ancient era would think about when considering beauty and concepts, such as symmetry and ratios. The Enlightenment era philosophers of the modern period, influenced by the new emphasis on reason, grappled with the subjective nature of beauty and proposed a way that beauty could be both contextual yet universal. In the late modern and postmodern eras, women philosophers took up the question of beauty in application to themselves, attempting to find exactly how they should respond to the concept. Join us today as we look for beauty. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Open Door Philosophy. I am Andrew, the podcaster who is fanciful. <laughs> and I'm the resplendent Taylor Jones. And I'm the aesthetically perplexed Derek Parsons. And welcome to episode 76, the second part of a two-part series on beauty where we will look at some of what the most well-known philosophers have said about the subject. But first, guys, how's it going? You want me to use the line? Why don't you guys ever like reading my, reading my, my amusing... Uh, intros. I can do it. I can do it. Let me, I'll read it over again. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, you, you just, you just, just say the line. <laughs> but first, how now fellow potters? Ah, uh, how now indeed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Parsons is never beating the dad joke allegations. No, no, not at all. Not at all. Uh, okay. Well, I'll go first because mine's very, uh, very, uh, 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 what do I call it? Um, involved. There. We'll I've call been on the edge of my seat. I know. So the first one's going to be sad. So, oh. so prepare yourselves. Uh, so last week, we had to say goodbye to one of our little fluffy friends. Mose? Uh, and yeah, Mose. Yes. We, uh, yes, Mose. Good Mose, the great Mose, Mosey. Mosey is her full name. Uh, we had to say goodbye to Mose last Thursday. So that's kind of hanging over the house. Uh, but then also, you know, sometimes you're placed in charge of something that, you know, is going to be a, a great challenge. And, you know, the whole greatness thrust upon you versus, you know, whatever. This last weekend at my school, there's an organization called Academic Decathlon that runs competitions and it's statewide. And it was taking place at the school at which I work. And I was asked to be the point person for providing the, uh, the tournament facilities, not running the tournament. I have nothing to do with the tournament, uh, but to run it anyway, lots of preparation to make that happen. Uh, but my favorite stat is on Friday and Saturday combined, I walked a little, uh, I walked about 50,000 steps. And if, if you, you know, so if you take the whole 2000 steps is basically a mile, uh, within the confines of my school, I all but like walked a marathon inside of my school building <laughs> over two days. So I am tired. My body is broken. I'm a little sad and, uh, we'll see how today's pod goes. So I'm in a mood. Anyway, Taylor, how are you? Hmm. I'm doing okay. Pretty good, but tired. I'm so sorry to hear about sweet little Mosey. No, no, thank you. Um, I'm also pretty tired. My church puts on a conference, I was telling Mr. Parsons, called World Mandate, um, where they have like different speakers come in, and it's all about you know being active in the faith and stuff. And I was part of the choir, so... Had lots of choir rehearsals this week to get prepped for that. And then Friday, I was at the church from like, I don't know, like five o'clock to a little after 10. And then I was there from like 8.30 yesterday to 11.45. So long days. It was very, like, it was great, but also very tired. Yeah. How are you, Andrew? Oh, wait, I have a follow-up question. Oh, yeah. Uh, did, uh, did you enjoy uh Singing choir again. It's been a while I for you, I, I think. Yeah, it's been, yeah, like a year since I've done choir. Mm -hmm. It was fun. Um, it was kind of like a small-ish group, like 30 people probably. Mm -hmm. But it was a lot of fun. A lot of like retired choir and theater people. So it was fun uh -huh. to get to like 
do that. And we had a couple of things with like specific parts, but most mm-hmm. of it, it was like kind of sing the melody or if you find a harmony, do that. So yeah, sure. it was a lot of fun. Sure. All right. Did you produce anything that was beautiful? Yeah. We've made some beautiful <laughs> sounds. I'm sure I there's videos online on the oh, Insta. On the Insta. I'll have to check the, it out. On the gram. On yeah. the gram. All right, Andrew, over to you. Well, um, I'm sorry to hear about Moe's. How old was Moe's? Because he was, he was pretty old dog, doggo, right? Yeah, so we don't know how old she was. Uh, we had her for 12 and a half years is what we can wow. say. She was not a puppy when she came to us. So she was probably 14 or so. Mm. Yeah, well, that's still still hard to hear. Yeah. yeah. Good old Moe's, yeah. the mighty yeah. Moe's. She's been a staple yeah. Yeah. for a long time, so I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was both uh, surprising and not surprising. Like we knew it could happen any day. Um, mm-hmm. We didn't know it would be that day, and yeah. uh, and it was. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, Andrew. that's always hard yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. Well, how are you, Andrew? Both of your weekends sound a lot busier than mine, uh, which is I'm <laughs> I'm fine with that. <laughs> uh, well, then we'll be envious. <laughs> yeah. And Andrew is joining us on location today. So yeah. thanks, Andrew, from wherever yeah. you're coming from. Yeah, usually I record in a space with better Wi-Fi and better sound. So if it's a little different today, sorry about that. But uh, we're working with what we can. All is good. I've just been not doing much, uh, just working. And uh, nothing exciting is in my is in my wheelhouse right now. So I'm just, you know, put it in the put it in the hours, get in the bacon and then uh, and then relaxing on the weekends. So no deck of competitions, no choir, but. Yeah, that's about, it sounds so boring. Yeah, that's it. It, it sounds it's, blissful. Yeah, boring <laughs> yeah. is nice. Yeah, I'm I'm absolutely fine with that. Yeah, so, it's uh, like blissful any day. Yeah, mm-hmm. I will I will as well. I've been reading a lot, which we'll talk about later. And uh, and yeah, it's just been super, super, super relaxing. So I'm gr- really glad about that. All right, awesome. All right, yeah. Let's get into the let's get into the show. Yeah, so in our previous episode, we just kind of kicked the subject of beauty around and all of its many kind of questions that come up about it and, uh, and, and, and wrestled with them a little bit on our own. This episode, we're going to take a look at some very specific philosophers uh, who are very influential when it comes to concepts of beauty and aesthetics and see what they specifically had to say. So uh, let's get going. Let's break this topic down, how we're going to do it. So we're going to go chronologically, I'm guessing, throughout time to look at different philosophers on beauty and their reactions to it. We're going to start off, I'm going to cover Plato and Aristotle, give an overview, and we'll talk about it. And then how about you guys introduce who y'all will do? So Mr. Parsons will do, he just took a big sip of water. I love doing this when I teach. I love doing that when they put a snack in their mouth and, you know, they're about to, then I call on them. (laughs) No snacks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So for me, I'm covering the modern. So I've got Immanuel Kant and David Hume. Actually, I'm covering Hume first and then Kant. But uh, those are the two I'm hitting up. And then I'm talking a little bit more contemporary. So for contemporary, I picked Betty Friedan. But she also relates back to Wollstonecraft, who writes in the modern era. So kind of a transition where you see some of those ideas throughout modern into contemporary. Yeah, you know, in my intro, actually, now I realize I mistakenly said late modern and postmodern, but Wollstonecraft is like a late enlightenment thinker, so that's not late late modern yeah, at all. I think she's like late 1700s. Yeah, yeah, yeah like she's a around All right, well, let's just get into it. Let's just get into uh, the episode. We're going to start with Plato today. I'm, I'm happy to return to my old friend, and we're going to be looking three things from Plato. We're going to be, so I'm going to break this down and from the general to the specific, and we're going to be looking, starting with this conception of the beauty in relation to the world of forms, and then we're going to be, in general, and then we're going to be looking at the specific form of the beautiful, and then we are going to be looking at 
beauty in nature, beauty in the physical world. And so this should give us a pretty good understanding of both the metaphysical and epistemological and physical aspects of, uh, of Plato's conception of beauty. So let's start off with the world of forms. And I wanted to read straight from the text from Plato's Symposium. And I will do that in a second. But when Plato is talking about beauty, he's not talking necessarily, he's talking beauty with capital B. I mean, that's not what it's written as in the book, but I think that's how we should think about it now. So if he's saying, you know, the hand purse is beautiful. I don't know why I said that, but, uh, you know, the computer is beautiful, whatever. He's making a metaphysical recognition in something inherent inside of that object. So mm-hmm. that's an important thing. Uh, and so for Plato, like I said, this is a thing which an object or entity in the world participates in together with its necessary substance. Now, that's a little confusing, so let's break that down. If I have a plant uh, for Plato, that plant is going to exist in two spectrums. Okay, so the plant is going to exist in the physical world. Uh, but what's giving it its qualities, like its height, its you know, its color, its shape, its very form of itself, uh, is abstract forms. And that plan in the physical world participates in a matter of degree to those forms. And so, what I mean by it participates in a matter of degree is, uh, you know, not everything in the physical world, I mean, absolutely nothing in the physical world participate would participate 100% or 0% probably for some things. Eh, some things could participate 0%, but something could not be 100% green in the physical world. Something could not be 100% at all. You know, something could not be 100% beautiful either. And so when we would call something beautiful in the physical world, again, that would be Plato's recognition that that object or whatever is participating in the form of the beautiful. So what is the form of the beautiful as a, as an overall concept? Well, let's read from Plato himself. Plato says, this beauty, capital B beauty, is first of all eternal. It neither comes into being nor passes away, neither waxes or wanes. And so let's stop here and talk about it. What does that mean? Well, beauty, again, it's not physical. It's not something that's destroyed. And we first see here this really important part because, of course, all things in the world, and Plato would be the first to admit it, will be destroyed. And so from here we get this abstraction away from the physical. Uh, Beauty itself is, uh, is away from the world. So secondly, he says... Beauty, this form again, we're not talking about something in the, in the world. Beauty, the form, it's completely beautiful. It can't be ugly 1% or 2% or 3%. It is 100% beautiful. He says it's not beautiful in part and ugly in part, nor beautiful at one time and ugly at another, nor beautiful in relation to ugliness, nor beautiful here and ugly there is varying according to its beholders. Nor again will this beauty appear to him like the beauty of a face or hands or anything corporeal. So beauty, again, Plato here is talking about its qualities as a form. One, as we said, it's not disappearing. But secondly, (laughs) it's never going to be ugly. It's not going to be something that's relativized as well. So the form of beauty, it's not going to be beautiful in my eyes or beautiful in Mr. Not beautiful in Mr. Parson's eyes and half and half in Taylor's eyes. It is just beauty itself. And that's really key for point for distinction later, uh, which I think we'll see uh, when we look at Aristotle a little bit more. And thirdly there too, he's saying, okay, uh, beauty is not constrained to something physical. Nothing physical in the world will fully encapsulate beauty. He uses beauty of a face. Okay, beauty exists outside faces. It exists outside of plants. It exists outside of anything physical. It's not constrained to those things. And finally, and this is, I think, the big hitter for, for Plato, he says something to the extent of, and I cut it off here, but uh, I think he says 
something like this here. If an individual would be able to recognize the beautiful, he wouldn't see it when he looks at the sky or the trees. He'd be recognizing little parts of it. And because all things in the world we know are not fully in capital of, of beauty, they wouldn't be that beauty in 100%. Because beauty itself can never die. It can never change. And since everything in the world changes and dies and passes away, uh, we know from that that beauty is not something necessarily physical. Now, here's where we're going to move on to beauty as a form. But before we do that, I think this is a radically different concept for us when we talk about beauty in the world. So what do you guys think about beauty, capital B beauty, as being something which is ethereal, which something is cannot be fully constrained by the physical? I think that's some, a radical thing for somebody to say. What do you all think about that? Do you think that's true or false or what? I like the idea. I don't know. I think Plato gets a lot of flack, but I think... I don't know. I feel like people are also kind of naturally coming around to this idea. I feel like that's kind of what I've seen among like social media where people talk about like seeing the ways that little things kind of transcend their immediate presence and have like beauty in them, if that makes sense. I don't know Mm. if it really answers Andrew's question, but I do like this idea that beauty can't fully be constrained in the physical, that there is something deeper and more transcendent than what we can just see with our eyes. And I think that kind of goes back to what we were talking about last episode when we said that sometimes things become more beautiful as you get to know them more, as you have a deeper understanding, you see their beauty in a new way and you can see more beauty sometimes. And you realize that maybe the physical beauty, it doesn't like compare to, to what the transcendent beauty of something is. I love that. You know, when I teach the world of forms in class, when I leave, it's kind of like I'm, uh, you know, high or something uh, (laughs) because I'm just so enraptured with Plato's concept of the theory of forms uh, or the world of forms. I remember, I think this last year, I actually texted my wife after class and I just like gushed. I'm like, the world of forms is the most beautiful philosophical concept in all of, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, I love it. Ah, I don't know if it's true. I love the idea. I think there is this sort of human nature concept or, or desire to think that there is something more to this physical mm-hmm. realm. And that when we talk about beauty, that's one of those things that we would like for there to be something more than just what we see with our eyes or experience with our senses, that there's something underlying it that makes it beautiful. And Plato's world of forms sort of fills that gap. I can't remember what your original question was, Andrew. And and I, I don't think it was, you know, do you think it's true? Uh, but it does seem that there are ascending hierarchies in the natural world in, in all kinds of different ways. And so why not with concepts as well? Um, and so, you know, listeners can reference back to some other episodes where we talk about the world of forms and whether that's we're talking about the good, uh, whether we're talking about truth, whether we're talking about the concept of beautiful, it, it all ascends to the good. And uh, the good is the ultimate good. And nothing more can be said of it. But those are such lofty heights. Anyway, I'll stop there. That's a great segue, actually, for me, because uh, as I said a minute ago, when I was saying beauty as a big B, B capital B beauty, uh, the reason I said that comes from a little, and uh, people are going to get annoyed for a second with me, but uh, if we go into the Greek grammar lessons, uh, which uh, are awful, we know <laughs> and we can call it this because the adjective of beauty, calling something beautiful, is a different word than what Plato uses here. Yeah. He uses it as a beauty, as a neuter noun, which is unimportant, but it's uh, it, it's unimportant what that means. But uh, it's something different. So uh, the word beauty is in the world of forms that we're talking about, not saying something's beautiful, but the word beauty itself is kalon, to kalon, and the word beautiful is kalos, So those are two different words to describe something. But what's interesting, and why I say it's a good segue, is because the form of the beautiful is identical to the form of the good. 
mm. and of the true and the pleasant. Uh, it's all the same world or all the same, it's all world. The same word. word, excuse word. me. Yes. Okay. Interesting. Cologne. So how does it get interpreted or uh, translated in different ways? Yeah. I think that we can use that. And that's a good question in relation to the context of what's being talked about. If he's describing yeah, something as sure. a physically beautiful, it's also going to be physically, you know, physically or a, um, if we're describing other things as good, we can see it that way. But here's the problem with, uh, with Plato. He never really defines what this word is, cologne, the good, the true, the beautiful, mm. other than those. I mean, because it would be impossible. It would be truly impossible for him to do so. You cannot define a, a, a form. You can't define it with, with uh, you can identify its qualities or its substance, but you couldn't do that. We see that he talks a lot about beauty in this relation, big B beauty in relation to with people, but then he's using terms like eros in relation to beautiful or the good uh, or for art or whatever. So I think that's something interesting and we'll see something, uh, we'll see something that's related to that in a second with uh, with Aristotle and his relation to that. But before you move on, yeah, I, I thought of an example of yeah. when I said, you know, it's kind of our human nature to, to want to believe there's something more beautiful than the physical realm. So if you think about uh, like any couple that's been together their entire life, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that bodies age and bodies change. And by some of our standards of beauties that humans have, especially in the Western world's uh, youthful features, and you know, the entire beauty industry tries to uh, minimize this as much as possible with with wrinkles and spots and you know skin care, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, the body changes and is no longer beautiful by human standards or Western Western human beauty standards, right? But I mean, and <clears throat> of course, my wife and I are not old. But as as my wife ages, if you try to tell me she's not beautiful, well, I'm coming at you. <laughs> and so that, that kind of gets the concept of like, there's something more to mm-hmm. beauty than just that, uh, than just that outward appearance. And I think maybe I, that was in the intro, the previous uh, episode of like, mm-hmm. you know, there is this exterior and then that there is something, something within or beyond that exterior uh, that we find beautiful. So anyway, that was, that was an example of like, you know, when I say like human nature, want to want to believe that that is true the idea of a form of beauty that's kind of a real world example that's great yeah Yeah. that's wonderful that's a great example uh and let me clarify something here too and i think this is something that you know people don't recognize uh when they're talking about beauty well two things for plato a beauty is objective how beautiful something is the degree to which it's beautiful is how much it participates in uh, the form of the beautiful. Okay. Mm. And so, so for Plato, and I think he explicitly talks about this, there are people who are not experts who say something's beautiful when it's not. And for Plato, he's not going to have this modern reaction to that where he says, well, you can think this is beautiful and I can think this is beautiful and we're both right. No, you just do not, uh, you're not able to recognize the form of the beauty as well as someone else. And two people can be wrong. Two people can both disagree about if something's beautiful and not, they can both be wrong. It's really independent of a human. And the human who's going to be able to recognize the form of the beauty best is the philosopher. Not naturally. You will, if you think about it like this, it makes sense. So, if the form of the beautiful is the same as the form of the true and of the good, and the philosopher studies to best recognize what is the good, then he's also, or she is also going to be able to best recognize the beautiful and the true. And so, I think it makes sense. Actually, Hume agrees with this. We'll, we'll get to it. But yeah, Hume agrees with this, this idea. I mean, it's very compelling. Not, not of the beautiful, but of, of someone who yeah, has the ability to you can to be wrong. Yeah, 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 yeah. And let us just end off Plato with this. Physical things, like I said, and this was going to be my second point, they can never be fully beautiful, like I said earlier, because beauty is an internal, ever-changing, unchanging thing. Since everything changes and dies and goes away, it can participate in the form of beauty for you know, for a little bit or whatever, but 
anything that's physical is never going to be beautiful for its entire existence. Now you can say, uh, let's go back to Mr. Parsons' example with his uh, wife or for another human who he says, the physical is subsidiary. It goes away. And so why would someone say after 20 years or you know 60 years or something, how are you beautiful? Well, because inside every human being is an eternal unchanging soul. And uh, the quality of that soul itself can be beautiful, good, and true. And so what I think Plato would say there is, when you're calling someone beautiful, really, it's not necessarily the physical. It's not a physical description. Although you could certainly say, you know, your body is beautiful or something. I sound like a John Mayer song now saying that. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but really, when we would say that and we truly mean it, it's the soul that's beautiful. And since the soul is eternal and unchanging, uh, that is something that can eternally be beautiful and eternally be good. It's a beautiful concept. Let's move on to Aristotle real quick. And, uh, and I think he's the big grand poppy as a big relation to this whole philosophy of beauty episode, because he says that uh, philosophy of beauty is concerned with the philosophy of aesthetics. That's the Greek. Anybody know what aesthetics means in the Greek? Aesthetikos? No tikos. Not off the top of my head. <laughs> it means related to sense experience. So, ah. hmm. yep. So the the uh, philosophy of beauty or aesthetics, it's concerned at its root with physical beauty, uh, which is a big transition from Plato, who was, you know, considering yeah. beauty as something that, that's really ethereal. And so Aristotle, he's thinking that uh, beauty and justice and truth and goodness and all of these things, these are not ethereal truths, but instead they're recognitions of us seeing these things physically in the world. When we see something that's beautiful, that's exactly what it is. We are recognizing physical beauty. And what is physical beauty for Aristotle? Well, it's really related to proportion and harmony. And he comes up with this great concept of uh, the golden mean. And so um, things that are more proportional than others are, are, are more beautiful. And things that participate in things like ratios and all sorts of these things, uh, those are more beautiful. So what is beauty? It's something that uh, is recognized as proportional and in, harmo in, in harmony with itself, in relation to itself. The distinction here between Aristotle and Plato is exactly that. It's a beauty for Aristotle is a close observation of the tangible physical world. And I think he also devises the golden ratio, but I, I'm not sure about that one to measure these things, which is, you know, something for one to, to look at that's interesting in their own time. Aristotle, and this is what I'll end with, he writes this book about called The Poetics, which is this treatise on um, Greek tragedy and what makes, you know, what makes it good and why that is kind of the highest form of art. Uh, and he writes about beauty in there says, the chief forms of beauty are order, symmetry, definiteness, at which the mathematical sciences demonstrate in special degrees. And since order and def definiteness are obviously causes of many things, evidently these sciences must treat this sort of causative principle, i.e. the beautiful, as in some sense case. I think it's interesting, at least, that Aristotle's considering proportion and harmony to be to be measures of the beautiful and I, I mean i don't know really what to say about that other than yeah it seems it seems true we are naturally attracted to beauty and let me say one more thing uh, at the end of this too let's go back to the example of mr parsons and his uh, beauty and other people well how can he say that someone's beautiful and their body is withering away and not symmetrical well good question <laughs> <laughs> harmony can be achieved in the soul in relation to virtue. The virtue is a, a perfect harmony of things. And so calling someone beautiful might be a recognition of their virtue, of their soul in relation to themselves. I mean, it wouldn't be in relation to others, but, but yeah, that's how we could get uh, beauty and unphysical concepts like the soul or something like that, which Aristotle plainly recognizes to be true. The symmetry part reminds me a lot of um, Pythagoras and the Pythagorean school of thought that's based a lot on mathematics and like mathematic harmony in the world. So it's interesting to see how like all of those years later, because Pythagoras was 
pre-Socratic that this idea still kind of persisted throughout the Greek world. Yeah, and you know, Western architecture is, which is a good mm-hmm. example if you want to talk about symmetry. Um, there's this idea, and I don't know how true it is, especially from sort of a psychological standpoint of human nature, is that we are pattern-seeking animals, and symmetry is a type of pattern. And we like patterns mm-hmm. and we prefer order to chaos and we find chaos ugly and order beautiful or at least more pleasant than chaos. So, you know, I, I think that's interesting. We see, of course, that reflected in Greek architecture, which has influenced a great deal of, of Western architecture, even up to this very day. Uh, I don't know. I just think that's kind of kind of an interesting observation. Yeah, agreed. I'll finish with this because I think this is a good grounding principle for us to go back to with all of these people. But uh, would Aristotle say beauty is subjective then or objective? <laughs> Quite clearly, he would say it's objective. Recognition of uh, proportions and harmony and things. And with the soul, I mean, some people are better to recognize virtuous people or, you know, virtuous things. That's a better mm-hmm. thing to say. Virtue does not just apply to humans uh, for Aristotle. It would, re- it would be virtuous in all things. And so saying something beautiful could be a recognition of that, uh, you know, that harmony, that order of a thing. And really, it sounds all, a lot different from Plato it's not that much different. Plato thought that the good was also harmonious, that it was also well-ordered. And so there's some difference, but uh, order and harmony uh, and symmetry are really at the, the intersection of these guys. Well, I am, uh, I'm up next with the moderns. I just want to say one last thing. We'll just leave it a question up to the listeners. Otherwise, it's be an entire episode on the Greeks. Is not this order, the symmetry, these things that Aristotle is talking about, is that not reflected in the forms? Aren't the forms a, a representation of or embodiment of order rather than chaos? So anyway, we'll leave it up to the listeners. I've got the moderns. Isn't that fun? For for listeners unfamiliar, the modern era actually begins in the 17th century. Sounds kind of funny Mm -hmm. to say, but I've got the modern philosophers and I've chosen, I mean, there's no way I couldn't choose them if we're just doing a general episode on beauty. Uh, David Hume, the Scotsman, and Immanuel Kant, the German, both giants of the Enlightenment period of writing. They both have somewhat similar but different approaches to this idea of beauty. They both definitely lean towards subjective, like beauty is subjective, the subjective nature of beauty. But also they acknowledge, I mean, they try to have their cake and eat it too. They also acknowledge that aspects could be seen as hints of objectivity. So let's get into what they think about this. So Hume, David Hume, I'm doing him first just because the work that I'm referencing came first before Kant's work. Uh, So his famous paper on the standards of taste was published in 1757. But what I have to say is also kind of based on some of his other works, just like Plato. I mean, Plato does not have one work just on beauty. It kind of comes from multiple places. His concept here is that perception of beauty is subjective rather than having properties or existing in the object itself. Hume says beauty resides in the mind that contemplates the object. Beauty resides in the mind that uh, contemplates the object. Now, an interesting thing, and this ties back to, I think it was Aristotle, he talks about the importance of the critic. And I'll have some things to say about that in terms of like modern day concepts of the critic. But the importance of the critic. So despite the subjective nature, Hume argues for this standards of taste, right? And in the previous episode, I mentioned that Hume brings up this idea of standards of taste. Now, standards of taste, you might think it's subjective, but it's, well, okay. So standards of taste, which is not an objective measure, uh, it's formed through this consensus of experienced, educated, and sensitive judgments, right? So these are the critics. These judges, right, can identify qualities that make something beautiful, and they can set standards that others can aspire to understand and appreciate. But there's a real emphasis here 
on someone who is, as far as recognizing beauty and standards of taste, right? Because it does sound super subjective. Oh, anyone can just, you know, say that's tasteful. Uh, and, and, and it is. Not so with Hume. Like standards of taste exist, but the person who sets those standards is someone who's educated, experienced, and sensitive in this particular area. So that's critic. Today, uh, you know, we have critics. They write articles in newspapers and other publications to tell us about this particular work of art, whether that's film, whether that's television, whether that's paint something painted, whether that's dance, whether that's a musical, whatever. These are critics. And the, a good question is, I mean, like the Oscars are coming up. And one complaint about the Oscars is they hardly ever recognize popular movies. And by popular, I mean movies that make a great deal of money. If you go back and look, most of the best picture winners are not films that made hundreds of millions of dollars. Sometimes only a couple million, certainly under 50 million, a lot of them, not all of them like Titanic got the best picture once and it made a bazillion dollars. So here's the question. Should we listen to the critics? Are critics important? I think yes. Is anybody surprised that I say that? <laughs> People just, uh, I think, in general, including me, we don't know. I mean, there's no way that we can spend our entire lives studying an art form. There's just no way. In the same way that I'm not going to, well, some may, that I'm not going to listen to somebody who has never, well, I'm not a good example of this, actually, because I'm relatively new to the workforce. But uh, I think if someone came to somebody who's working in business and said, oh, yeah, you know, this is how you should run your company off the street, who's never been involved with business at all. I mean, they're not, there would be a fool to recognize them or for somebody off the side of the street to say, oh, yeah, this is a good investment or whatever. I mean, it would be a fool. It's impossible for one to study and to know and to, you know, it's just not your job. You're not going to spend all your time doing that. And so I think from from that way, a critic who probably has been in the industry has studied the art quite a good deal. I mean, yeah, we should definitely take them into consideration. Is there room for audience choice? Yeah, sure. But I think critics are probably necessary. Uh, but everyone hates a critic. What do you think, Taylor? I agree with Andrew. Um, wow. I think that critics are important for the same reasons that they're an expert in a field, but I don't think they're the be-all, end-all. Say, like, a movie critic, maybe it's, like, critically not rated well. It has a 20% on Rotten Tomatoes, but somebody has a personal connection to that movie, and maybe they accept, okay, it's not an objectively good movie. It could be objectively terrible, but they find something very touching in it. I think that's also important. Um, is anybody surprised that this is my take? Probably not. So I would say, yeah, the expertise is important, but the subjective experience is also important. So one of the reasons I bring this up is there's this book. Oh, gosh, when did it come out? Let me see. Uh, 2016. The, the author's name is A.O. Scott. He's a critic. And the book is called Better Living Through Criticism. And in the introduction, he talks about how, I can't remember what year the movie came out, but the Avengers, uh, the big Avengers movie. Or Marvel, mm -hmm. he like notoriously gave it a bad review um, and said it was just not good art. And he caught like hell for that. I mean, even Samuel L. Jackson came after him, uh, you know, in the in the Twitterverse. That's crazy. And his whole argument is like, it's uh, c critics are important. And I won't go into his argument. What he what he said, you know, that about the Avengers. But the whole point is. This idea that critics are uh, are oftentimes panned or dismissed, and I think a lot of that is well, we always have opinions about art, but like Andrew mentioned, in this information age that we now live in, uh, everyone can give a review about anything, and so uh, so in this way, everyone's a critic. You get on whatever website that you're ordering whatever mm -hmm. from, and you can give that thing a review of one to five stars. And, uh, and you can write a little review. And so everyone's a critic now. You know, the question is like, how, Im how important is it in terms of like judgment of aesthetics? Is this everyone's a critic business or, you know, are critics truly valuable? You guys have kind of already answered that question. But uh, yeah, what, what's, what's the impact, I guess, of, of everyone being able to be a critic? Is that good, bad? Because I mean, we have it. 
than used to. You'd have to get the newspaper to read like what your one person uh, who works in your local newspaper said about whatever movie. And now we're inundated with thousands, hundreds of thousands of opinions if we want them. I think it it has positives and negatives. It's like everywhere you turn, there's an overwhelming amount of everybody's opinions on literally everything and you cannot escape them. But to go to the positive side, you get a lot more perspectives um Mm -hmm. like you see how different people of different backgrounds all um consumed the same piece of media and i think it's cool that you we get to see how different people take different things away from something like a book that thousands of people across the world may pop onto book talk and say okay i really liked say the invisible life of Addie larue because that's a pretty popular book Mm -hmm. and you see all the things that these different people take away from it which i think is a cool benefit of having such a connected world and same thing with to go on the book talk theme of like rating books and a lot of people just do it based on their enjoyment so i don't know i think it can be positive it definitely has the potential to be so negative it can be really positive seeing how different books are enjoyed and you can maybe get a better feel for how you would like something if you see, okay, this person has my same taste in books or mm-hmm. movies or music, and they also liked this thing, so maybe I will also like this. That's great. Yeah. Well, Andrew is having Wi-Fi issues, so if he chimes in, then he does. But if not, <laughs> we'll keep rolling on. Yeah. Let me wrap up Hume because we got to get we got to get going here. So another word that Hume uses is sentiment, and people familiar with Hume will probably understand this. So appreciation of mm-hmm. beauty, he says, is a sentiment, and by that he means an emotion. The appreciation of beauty does not come from rationality, according to Hume, but it is how the observer feels about the object. But, and this goes back to the critic thing, he does say appreciation of beauty can be accomplished through education and refinement. So Hume, he certainly acknowledges that different cultures and other historical contexts play a role in our appreciation and standards of beauty. But he believed that through education, exposure, and refinement, people could appreciate the standards of beauty found in different cultures or within one's own culture. And this does link kind of back to the idea of standards of taste and critics. But this education, exposure, and refinement, people could, again, find beauty in some other culture's conception of beauty. And that's one of the arguments about beauty, whether it's subjective or objective. People are like, oh, cultural relativism, you know, whatever culture believes this is beautiful, another culture may not, and that's just how it is with beauty. But in this way, Hume tries to find some sort of universality by saying, if we all are educated enough about particular forms of beauty, then we can recognize that beauty, even if it doesn't come from our particular culture. So that's why I say he he tries to have his cake and eat it too. I don't know. Any, any comments on that, Taylor? Do you think education can, can pull this off? I think education can help. And maybe it's the social scientist in me that is very interested in value systems and how different cultures value different things. And I think you see that very strongly in what they see as beautiful in the art that a culture produces and um, like the clothing that they wear and the way they decorate their homes. And I think education can really help you understand that and see the commonality between cultures, even if they're very different. If you think about like the Europeans in the 1700s and like the Mayans, I'm sure there's things on kind of a general level that they both really appreciate. And you can see that through what they find beautiful, which you wouldn't be able to recognize without education. So the next person that comes after Hume relatively quickly is Immanuel Kant, the great German In his book that he published came out in 1790, that is the Critique of Judgment. Kant says beauty is a form of aesthetic judgment and an appreciation of an object not just for its usefulness or moral goodness, but for its aesthetic value. So now we're really talking about value of aesthetics. Similar to Hume, he says beauty is not a property of an object itself, but a reflection of how we perceive it or subjective response to it. Hume says that uh, beauty comes from the mind of the observer. 
and I guess this is kind of similar, but, but Kant says it's how we perceive it, our subjective response to it. He also believed that there is an aspect of universality. So here he goes trying to walk that middle road as well. So if, if we find something to be beautiful, we think or we feel that everyone else should find it beautiful too. And I think that's kind of like why we get annoyed with critics. So that doesn't sound universal at all, but here's how he tries to, to work it in. He says this doesn't mean that everyone will agree on what's beautiful. The universality is not based on empirical consensus, but it is normative based mm. on a principle that such agreement is reasonable to expect. So universal does not necessarily mean objective, like probably we think of like objective properties, but that is his workaround. And so to wrap up Kant, a couple of other things that are very much so associated with his idea of aesthetics. One is, and this is really interesting as far as art goes, disinterested pleasure. Hmm. So our judgments of something being beautiful should not come from our personal desires or interests, but should arise from what he calls a disinterested pleasure of the object itself. And I guess this is trying to be objective about judging beauty, but the whole disinterested pleasure, I just think of like, you know, stuffy old men in an art gallery looking at a gigantic Renaissance painting or something. And they're not really about it. But they're like appreciating the beauty in a sort of disinterested way. I don't know. That's what comes up. I'll have a, you know, I'll have AI uh, come up with a photo of that. And the beauty of an object lies in the form of an object. So, so when he says form of an object, that's different than say property and that the perfection of the form must be seen that it has a purpose, even though we may not understand that purpose. So Kant would like to assign a purpose to beauty or the form of that object in which beauty lies. But similar to Aristotle, experiencing beauty involves a harmonious relationship between, and this isn't like symmetry and stuff, it's kind of interesting, a harmonious in, a relationship between our imagination, which is creative, and understanding, which is the rational. So it's like a combination of two. When we encounter something beautiful, these two faculties engage in a free and unconstrained type of play he uses that word specifically play which is which is pleasurable the play itself and contemplating beauty is pleasurable and leads to our judgment of the object as being beautiful and then the last thing again trying to come up with sort of universal standards he says common sense is important in, in this and not really common sense as we conceive of it today but he says common sense as far as a shared human capacity for judgment aesthetic experiences grounded in some shared human nature. So when we're talking about human nature, we're talking about something a little deeper seated than say what we typically think of common sense. Uh, and he says, we can expect that others would potentially share in that common sense as well. So that's Kant and Hume and their ideas on beauty. I don't know. Any thoughts about that, Taylor? Kind of stuck on the disinterested pleasure. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I don't know. It's like, I think maybe Hume walks the line between subjective and objective a little bit better based on kind of how you framed it. I don't know. Like, if you're going to say that there is a subjective quality to beauty, just own it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Especially if you're thinking about, like, art. Because so much of art, at least the way I see it, is meant to depict how we see the world or how we're living in the world. And we don't have to be disinterested, a neutral observer of art. You can also be, I don't know, interested in it. But I'm also a big fan of there is no view from nowhere. So I feel like this is not a surprising take <laughs> right, from me. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the, the whole diff the, yeah, the whole, uh, I I'm with you. Um, and I really need to dig into it deeper. My, my knowledge on this is really fairly mm -hmm. superficial. But yeah, disinterested pleasure is something very much so associated with, with the Kantian view of beauty. Hmm. I don't know. Interesting. Thoughts, Andrew? Andrew's back. <laughs> well, I've been jumping in it. Yeah, I've been jumping in and out uh, for the for like the past five minutes. But uh, so I don't I don't know exactly where we are. But let me just ask this of both of you. Sure. Is it hard for you guys to accept that there's a objective objective beauty 
I mean, not for me. I just want to know how to get there intellectually. Well, the reason I ask is from time to time, some of some things I hear is like, you know, I think that if if we hold beauty to be true uh, and objective, we can't say, you know, I and it's difficult for us to do this, I think. But, you know, my opinion or I think it's this way or whatever, we have to say beauty is X or beauty is Y with no room for for doubt. I guess where I stand is I can accept that there may there is an objective standard of beauty. And I think part of that may also come from like a bit of a religious background. God is the pinnacle of beautiful like beautiful construction. But I also think that the subjective experience of the world is important that how people encounter beautiful objects also has value. Yeah, I kind of expressed that in the previous episode and and admitted I hadn't worked it out fully, but mm-hmm. there seems to be kind of like two types of beauty to me. One one is that there is an objective beauty mm-hmm. that Plato alludes to, but then also there's an Aristotelian view. Like, honestly, the two of them sum it up pretty good for me, and I feel like both are there, and they matter in different ways. Yeah, and I think that could also come from how we approach philosophy differently. I really like kind of the phenomenology side of how the individual exists in the world and what the subjective experience is. Whereas Andrew really likes the pursuit of truth in philosophy and like an objective standard. So I think just coming at it from two different ways may also cause a little bit of that like difference or juxtaposition. Well, I I don't, I don't really think that there's a, I don't think that there's a clear dividing line because, uh, a phenomenologist, and I think I am at least quarter a phenomenologist in my work, would be fine with saying there's an objective beauty. Mm-hmm. It would be about the attraction part. It would be about the experiential part. Mm-hmm. And that's what the, I think what the difference would be there. How do people interact mm-hmm. with beauty is really, and how do they experience it? Or how do it would be, I, I don't think that's really... I think that's a different question than objective versus subjective beauty or how do in- mm-hmm. individuals interact with beauty? How do individuals interact with a thing? I don't know. I mean, I think it is a separate question at the root of it. Let's move on to our third category of philosophers, uh, feminist philosophers. So, Taylor, off you go. Yeah. So, Mr. Parsons said, I want you to look at more of the modern thinkers. And I said, amazing. <laughs> and it wouldn't be my free choice if I didn't pick a woman. No, that I'm just joking. But I do love um, the female perspective in philosophy. So, like we said at the beginning, one of the philosophers I picked is Mary Wollstonecraft. Um, she's one of the earliest female philosophers to be published, and she's writing about the same time as Kant and Hume. Um, I think A Vindication of the Rights of Women comes out in like the 1790s. So this is still a time when women have very, very little freedom outside of the home. There's still, marriage is still more of an economic proposition than one marrying for love. Women don't have political rights like suffrage. They can't have a bank account. They don't really own anything of their own. And Wollstonecraft takes issue with this, specifically how women are socialized. And in A Vindication of Rights of Women, she discusses how beauty ties into the socialization of women. And one of her big critiques of the pressure for women to be beautiful is that strength and usefulness are sacrificed to beauty. So women are raised up and they go to finishing school where they're taught how to be polite and how to set the table and to cross your legs and to do all of these things associated more with manners. But boys go to school and they're educated in things like math and science and history and philosophy. And there's just a very stark difference in the education of men and women. Part of that education is teaching women to be beautiful instead of strong. So women should look pretty and they should take care of the house, but they should not have strong opinions. They should not, you know, try to do anything outside of the gender roles. So essentially women get reduced to beautiful things to look at 
they're almost objects in the world rather than subjects. And she also talks about how women are like birds in a guilt cage that say the same idea of you're supposed to be pretty to look at and entertaining to a degree, but nothing more than that. And I think that's a really interesting implication of beauty at the same time that as Mr. Parsons was talking about Kant saying that beautiful things don't need to be useful. Wallstonecraft comes in and she's like, yeah, that is the problem that women are supposed to be beautiful and not useful. I think that also has an interesting connection to Plato um, in the symposium. We didn't talk about this, but I think we did in a previous episode um, with the ladder of love. And one of the lowest forms of love is love of a beautiful body. And you see that for a lot of history, women are reduced to beautiful bodies. You're supposed to be pretty. And that even continues today. I can stop and we can, you know, chat about anything before I go on. Yeah, it is interesting that they were writing at the same time. Mary Wollstonecraft was swept up in the French Mm -hmm. Revolution. Uh, Her book comes out in 1792, which, boy, if I'm remembering right, that's during the Reign of Terror or near the end of the Reign of Terror in Mm -hmm. the French Revolution. But she was very involved with the, uh, the salons as uh, Enlightenment thinkers in France, like Rousseau, who we talked about in a previous episode not too long ago, uh, you know, was, was writing in that time. So her book comes out only two years after, after Kant's, and of course he's over in Germany. So that in and of itself is kind of interesting. I think your point about purpose is really fascinating too, and I think this is where we get this idea that mm-hmm. beauty is outward and inward, and at the time, women were seen as beauty that is outward. And not acknowledging Mm -hmm. the inner part or the soul, as Aristotle would say, that contains beauty, virtue, right? Mm -hmm. Even if women had virtues, those types of virtues were like knowing how to take care of the house and participate in proper conversation and, Mm -hmm. you know, pour pour a good tea party and all that sort of good stuff. And so Mm -hmm. their beauty was really denied except for this outward type of beauty. And then you get to that question of like, well, then how how valuable is that type of outward beauty? And for the time period, not very valuable from a woman's perspective in the 18th century. So if a woman's beauty is outward facing for them to be pretty, I am, I'm not sure about this, but would this, was she part of an aristocratic family of sorts? Because if she's supposed to be like the role of a caretaker or a, of a mother or something like this, which I, I'm assuming like lower class women would also have to do with all of their textiles and things, what would be the difference of that in a in a man who has to you know go work in a factory and take take care of his family in that way? Does that make sense? Does this question make sense? I think she was part of at least a well off family to be able to be educated um, to any degree and be able to write the way that she does. I think one of her problems is that there was no choice for women to be anything outside of the home, that that was kind of the end role. They didn't get to choose to have a job and make money for the family, but the men did. I'm not sure if that really answers your question. I mean, we can save it for a separate episode, I guess, but the men's choice was to be... uh... Yeah, I don't know. We'll talk about it later. I don't. I don't like my audio now. And uh, and yeah. Well, to satisfy you, Ender, I looked it up. It looks like she, her family had a comfortable income when she was a child, but mm-hmm. uh, but her father <laughs> squandered it often, and they were financially unstable a, oh. a number of times, and they had to they had to frequently move when she was young. I don't know yeah. about later in her life. And maybe it's more about the idea um, that kind of persists today that women are expected to be beautiful and like held that the female standard of beauty is an expectation. Whereas the male standard of like beauty and appearance is more of an aspiration. Men can be conventionally like very fit and attractive, but they don't have to be to exist in the world. But women are socialized in a way that you have to be presentable all the time. And that comes first, like have your hair done and your makeup done and look nice in the world. And that's kind of the standard baseline of how you're supposed to exist. Whereas men don't always have that same expectation that they're going to be 
groomed above average and their hair is always going to be done and they're always going to have a stylish outfit on and that sort of thing. Um, All right. Well, how does that link with your next philosopher, Betty Friedan? So Betty Friedan writes a book called The Feminine Mystique, where she discusses how beauty um, expectations relate to a woman's identity. And she kind of has a similar perspective to Wollstonecraft, which is very interesting to me to see how that persists across time, but also kind of disheartening because Friedan was writing in the 1950s after the publication of The Second Sex. So it's been about 250 years. My math may be wrong on that, but it's been a long time, over a century, since Wollstonecraft has published A Vindication of the Rights of Women, talking about how women should be educated and not just beautiful to look at. And then Friedan talks about how a woman's identity is built around being a beautiful housewife. That there's this trend of young women that are pursuing serious romantic relationships in high school and early college and dropping out of school to be wives and mothers. And that is their only identity. And she also delves into how beauty standards reflect kind of the disintegration of a female identity separate from the home and talks about how all of these things that women will do to achieve what they see as the standard of beauty. She talks about how, um, for one example, that women would eat chalk to lose weight so that they looked like the models in the magazines. And I that is just so, I don't even know how to describe it, but it just makes me really sad, especially to think about how women are still doing these things today, but just in a different way. Y'all may have heard of the medicine, like the pharmaceutical drug Ozempic, that's to treat some other condition, but one of the main side effects is weight loss. So girls are trying to get on Ozempic for a condition they don't have so they can lose weight and be skinnier and conform to beauty standards. And I think it's a really powerful picture to see how throughout centuries from Wollstonecraft to Friedan and even to something like the Barbie movie, I know we've talked about it before, that just capture this feeling of women wanting to fit in, feeling this pressure that they have to look a certain way. Um, If you think about America Ferrer's monologue, that you have to be skinny, but you can never say you want to be skinny. You have to say you want to be fit, but that means you want to be thin. And that throughout centuries, this beauty standard has hung over women's heads, specifically young women who are very impressionable They feel like they have to conform to a standard of beauty before they're even able to build an identity of their own. I think what's fascinating about this is it's a real real world application of a lot of the things that early philosophers were Mm -hmm. talking about. Standards of beauty, idealized beauty, um, whether it's objective and Mm -hmm. subjective. And here is this conception in real world identified with identity or associated with identity. And so when I think of, you know, concepts like beauty of an object lies in the form of the object, we often think, you know, we're talking about art or, or anything that might exist in a house or something like that, mm-hmm. and that it must have purpose or that experiencing beauty involves harmonious relationships between imagination, symmetry, creativity, all this sort of stuff. When we get down to conceptions of like common sense and that uh, human capacity for judgment and that ascetic experiences mm-hmm. are grounded in shared human nature. And it's just all very abstract. And certainly we can continue talking about things like A.O. Scott does, you know, like about with Marvel movies and stuff like that. But um, mm-hmm. the beauty industry and what women um, are subjected to these days, especially through social media, that there is this particular standard. And if that standard is not met, mm-hmm. well, then you're, you're not. And to say that, you know, to use, we, we've been talking about concepts in such abstract ways. Uh, when you talk about Kant's critique of judgment, that we can expect others through common sense to potentially share in what we understand, what is beautiful. I mean, if that's what this is, you know, then it's quite ugly. Um, mm-hmm. And even Friedan talks about how the implications of women's socialization and education is that they struggle to even be able 
to put the feelings they have into words Mm -hmm. because they don't have the tools to express themselves. Yeah. Which my hope, and I think we're heading in this direction, hopefully, with something like, I don't know, I don't mean to keep coming back to it, but like the Barbie movie or even Taylor Swift, that they have this powerful ability to put into words the female experience. And a lot of women are able to point to that and say, oh my gosh, that um, that monologue by America Ferreira is how I feel. This Taylor Swift song is how I feel. Um, and like these women are able to put into words what so many other women struggle to. So I think maybe there's a change that we're going to be able to see with more mainstream representations of women and kind of hopefully changes in the beauty industry and kind of pulling back on how a woman has to look and having more variety. It's a fascinating juxtaposition if you want to try to think about this and say the artistic movements in the 20th century where we move from things like cubism to surrealism to modernism and people are you know like exploring what different like what beauty is in those different Mm -hmm. different areas of, of art and if you take that same thing and apply it to what you're talking about women's experience and how that could change and conception of beauty is uh, is an interesting thing to think about. Yeah, and there were some movements of women. I'm trying to find one of the painters or like artists that I liked, but women that satirized the female experience and beauty standard. Hannah Hodge was one of the women in, in this collage that she made called The Dream of His Life. It's of a like bridal photo shoot where a woman has on Um, a wedding dress and flowers and the background is pink and it's like pasted together with different borders. She was making art in this movement of like the new woman where women were able to kind of take back their image and like pushing against expectations and kind of flipping the script a little bit. So you do see a little bit of that in the abstraction, but yeah, it's really interesting to think about how art mirrors that. It is. Okay, everyone, that is it for this week on Looking for Beauty. We've explored a whole lot of different ways to think about beauty, and we hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. We always appreciate that you do. And please do let us know your thoughts over on Instagram at Open Door Philosophy or at our email at contact at opendoorphilosophy.com. You can head over and subscribe on our YouTube channel for video episodes. And please follow, subscribe to our podcast. Um, Give us a good rating if you do enjoy that. That's very helpful. And share some with a friend. Okay. As always, we thank our good friend Kevin McLeod, who creates beautiful music that uh, he makes available for people's free use. So thank you very much, Kevin. And, well, that's it, guys when your life is in need of some philosophy. Remember, that door is always open. See y'all later.